Hi, I'm Dhanaraj Thakur from the Center for Democracy and Technology, and this is Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 250. That's a very nice round number uh, for December 13th, 2021. And today we're going to be talking with, as you, as you might have guessed, Dhanaraj Thakur, who is from the Center for Democracy and Technology, who I don't think I've ever had on the show before. Uh, that is a representative from CDT, but I've wanted to have on for a long time. So uh, anyway, it's great to have him here. We're going to be talking about how basically our surveillance capitalist society, corporate surveillance, that is, you know, how we kind of trade for all these quote unquote free products has enabled end runs around our rights, at least here in the United States, to privacy and due process. Uh, basically, our law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies would normally have to get warrants or uh, go through some legal process to access some of this very personal data, uh, except now they don't have to. They can just go buy it like everybody else does. But anyway, I don't want to give away too much of that. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, but it's all because of a report that just dropped and it came out last week last Thursday, I think. And uh, I was privileged enough to get a uh, embargoed copy of that a little bit early so I could get ready for this interview. And this all came about because I went to a webinar a couple months ago uh, called The Patriot Act Turns 20. Hard to believe it's been 20 years since that was passed. And I think it was hosted by CDT. But anyway, at that session, I was listening to it. And, and I've got a link in the show notes. You really might want to check it out. It was a very interesting discussion. It was started off with a, a little talk from Russ Feingold. Uh, a senator who had a lot of influence back in the day before he retired and was around uh, for the Patriot Act and was one of the few who pushed back against it. Anyway, it was I thought it was a fascinating discussion. But uh, toward the end of that discussion, they were, they were taking Q&A and the way you did it was you'd post a question in the chat window and then the moderator would look through those and pick one to read and they pick mine. And it turns out that the CDT's representative there, uh, Sharon Bradford Franklin, <laughs> basically <laughs> said this was, I promise this wasn't a plant. I didn't, I didn't plant this question myself because she then said, it turned around and said, yeah, we're actually writing a report right now. that's going to be out later this year about that very question. And so of course, at that point I had to reach out to them and say, Hey, you know, I'd love to interview, but you know, someone from CDT about this. And you know, that process took some time. We finally got it together last week and timed it around the release of the report. And now we had this interview. So before we get to that interview, a quick couple news items. First of all, again, if you're still shopping for gifts, man, you better get on it because shipping is going to be tough this year. But if you're still looking for gifts, I guess you can always go to brick and mortar too, right? Be sure to check out my best and worst gift guide. You can find it on the website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And I have been updating it. In fact, I recently added some stuff based on some news articles about some just horrendous, quote unquote, smart devices for kids. And you should be aware of any toys that you buy for young kids that connect to the internet. But there's some really nasty ones that I've ran across some articles on, so I had to put those on the list. Also, we got a you know we'll have a new show next week. I've got a lot to catch you up on there. You know, Verizon just kicked off this customer tracking program and automatically enrolled everyone. Uh, very nice of them to do so. I'll talk about that next week. Though, if you're a newsletter subscriber, then last night you already got a little preview of what I'm gonna be talking about there. But there's there's gonna be a lot of stuff to catch you up on next week. And I've got some other stuff to pass along. So anyway, I'll talk about that after the interview. Now, for this interview, 
the only thing I'll mention real quick here is that we talk about and we do expand ECPA or the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, but Donarash does often refer to it as ECPA. So, so when he's throwing around ECPA, he's talking about the ECPA. All right, so let's get right to that interview with Donaraj Tucker. Donaraj Tucker is a research director at the Center for Democracy and Technology, where he leads research that advances human rights and civil liberties online. Welcome to the show, Donaraj. Thank you, Kerry. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk a little bit today about a really important report you guys just released. What I'd like to do to start off is tell me a little bit more about yourself and uh, the Center for Democracy and Technology. And then if you would maybe tell us, give us a, a, an overview of this report. Like, you know, And I'm mostly curious, like, where did you get some of the data from this report? How did you collect the information that went into this report? Yeah, sure. So I'm with the Center for Democracy and Technology. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. We also have our office in Brussels, and we primarily focus on technology policy issues and really uh, try to advocate for policies that will protect people's rights online. And we do that in many different areas, like in terms of privacy, in terms of free expression, in terms of uh, civic technologies, cybersecurity, and so on, and also in terms of security and surveillance. Mm -hmm. And one of the areas that is of a lot, you know, significant concern for us is law enforcement intelligence agencies' access to personal data. And that's what led to, you know, this area that we've been working for a while, and it led to the, the, the genesis of this report in really trying to understand the scale and the extent to which law enforcement intelligent agencies are purchasing personal mm-hmm. data, mm-hmm. like our, you know, f- from me and you, per- our personal data from brokers and how they do this by effectively doing an end run around um, existing legal requirements. So that is a big concern for us. And so we wanted to examine that problem and also illustrate the scale of which is happening and try to put forward ways we could address it. Yeah, yeah. And I did <laughs> And it's a really stunning report, and really happy to dig into that to uh, into that today with you. First of all, all, I mean, all of this starts with you know the rampant data collection and and in the aftermarket for user information. That's kind of the the way our unfortunately the way our internet economy mm. works today. Uh, and I think most people you know today are finally aware of the data collection part, but the world of data brokers is still a mystery, and honestly, it's probably deliberately opaque. And, uh, you know, you know, so even if people try to follow it, it's going to be hard to follow. So can you give us an overview maybe of the data broker ecosystem? Let's start with understanding what these companies are collecting and sharing and trading and, and you know, how that market kind of functions behind the scenes. Yeah, it's a great question. There is so much to say here. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. think I think you really hit, hit the nail on the head when you talk about, like, how it's really difficult to understand. In general, there's just... A, a high degree of opacity and things are just not transparent. And in many cases, they're deliberately not not transparent. Mm-hmm. We know that, you know, there are these different entities, data brokers, and in the report, we, ju- we kind of define them uh, basically as, uh, you know, businesses that, that knowing to collect, purchase, maybe analyze or collate personal data without having a direct relationship with the people th- whose data they're collecting, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately with a goal of selling that data to other entities. And there are hundreds, maybe thousands of these different kinds of businesses that mm. function as data brokers on many different scales. Some are very 
large, which we already know about, like Equifax or these very large, large-scale mm-hmm. brokers, and some that we've never heard of, and I mean, in the general public is not familiar with, which we mentioned in the report, or which are also quite large, but we're not familiar with um, entities like Ventel or Giant Oak or others. Mm. And I think we have to recognize that this ecosystem, this industry emerges from what is in effect a lack of, you know, federal privacy regulations. So it's really, in many cases, they're working on unregulated space, Mm. right? And because of that, it goes back to this lack of transparency. We're not actually clear how data brokers always get their information and data from. We know that they pull from many different, many sources, including possibly other data brokers. But it's not always clear what is that kind of clear supply chain from, Mm. you know, the person producing content online or sharing content online to eventually end up with a with a data broker. One example though is with mobile apps. So a lot of us use various, you know, many different apps on our phone, mm-hmm. phones. A lot of these apps will have language in their serve in their you know service agreements or in terms of that that say that they will share that data with other third parties, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They will share it with these third parties who may be data brokers or other aggregators, aggregators being entities that basically compile or or, or, or collate different people's data. And then who then sell it on to brokers. And brokers now will do further analysis or or share that with other other organizations who are looking to have a better understanding of people's um, you know, personal get personal information. And that could include law enforcement, and which is um, how we ended up with, with this report, law enforcement intelligence agencies. So yeah, it's it's not quite transparent how this whole ecosystem works. And it, it's complicated by the fact that the data broker does not directly interact with URI, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but many intermediate players along the way, which complicates and obfuscates what's really going on. Yeah. In the US, you know, we have some fundamental rights to privacy that are enshrined in the Constitution, for example, the Fourth Amendment, and, you know, maybe to some degree, the Fifth Amendment. You know, and since our framers obviously couldn't have foreseen things like cell phones and the internet, you know, we've obviously had to extend those rights or refine those rights over the years via regulation and, you know, case law, you know, legislation. Um, mm-hmm. So, but in your report, you find that, you know, that many of these uh, you know, legally established rights to privacy and due process are basically being circumvented. Right. You know, where, where it comes to, you know, things like law enforcement and intelligence agencies, you know, uh, having access to this data. So, Maybe give us an overview of, you know, the relevant protections that you believe are being sidestepped here by law enforcement and, and, and these intelligence agencies. We can look at this on two levels. I think one of the most significant pieces of legislation is, is the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of mm. 1986. And I think the year is significant here of when it was mm. implemented, which was uh, several decades ago. So what so. This act, ECPA, what it essentially does is provides like a legal structure for when and how government can access communication data that's provided by certain kinds of certain kinds of service providers, right? Mm-hmm. Providers that provide some kind of communication service or some kind of computing service, right? Mm-hmm. So think of like your ISPs, for example. Mm-hmm. What it says is that it prohibits those kinds of providers from providing data to law enforcement without the government obtaining require you know adequate legal process like getting a, a search warrant for example mm-hmm. right and in most cases it will protect like uh, people's like sensitive data but what it does allow is for 
those same providers to voluntarily share non-content data, so mm. uh, things like location data, right, or other kinds of metadata, with third parties who are not government, i.e. data brokers, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. So if those third parties are not covered by, in other words, they don't, they're not providing a communication service or a, or a, or a computing service, right, as defined by ECPA, uh, they can sell that data to anyone, including law enforcement, intelligence agencies. And so what that means then is that we have this kind of loophole in the law, right? Whereas at one level, it's prohibiting the providers from directly providing data to law enforcement without a search warrant, for example. But it allows these third parties that are not covered by it to sell that same data mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. law enforcement. And this is the one of the big loopholes that we... That is well known, and we, we kind of I, you know reiterate that in 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 the report. There is a is a there's a more recent um, landmark case on Carpenter versus the United States, which tried to address a, a part of this problem. So in in Carpenter, um, Carpenter the, in Carpenter the court essentially held that a warrant is required for law enforcement to access historical cell site in location information, right? Mm. Um, that, that so when you use your phone, your position or your location could be recorded mm-hmm. because of which cell site you're you're using at the time. Your your phone is connected to at the time, so it require a warrant is required for law enforcement law enforcement to access that kind of location information for a period of seven days or more. That's what the court said, right? And basically, it was saying that ac- accessing that that location information from like from anybody. In other words, it was saying that. ECPA's standard was inf- insufficient by mm. just limiting it in the way it was limited to certain kinds of providers. Why? Because the court in Carpenter argued that little information can really reveal a lot about our personal private life, right? It can tell us, it can tell someone where your families are, your political association, religious, sexual association, and so mm-hmm. on. So the court was arguing that this kind of deep, intimate knowledge about pr- someone's private life should not be available without without a, a warrant so that that was a landmark finding and, and from all points of view at cdt you know we argue that 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 kind of analysis and language should extend beyond just cell site location information because think about it all of our activities online now you know we do so much online it reveals so much about us mm-hmm. it doesn't just have to be our location our ip address but everything else can reveal so much about our private life in the same way that the court, the Supreme Court was recognizing at the time that cell site location information can reveal so much about our intimate lives. So we argue that that kind of analysis should extend beyond cell site location information. However, law enforcement agencies, you know, um, and intelligence agencies have already put out um, and stated that they have adopted a very narrow interpretation of Carpenter and believe that the case does not apply into their transactions with the mm. data broker. So, so there's that loophole in ECPA, and now we have this current na- kind of narrow interpretation of Carpenter, which uh, law enforcement and, and intelligence agencies are arguing does not prevent them from purchasing location or other personal data from data brokers. So there are t- these two levels there, we find that law enforcement and intelligence agencies are essentially, you know, circumventing um, legal requirements. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, in your your report, you give several examples of contracts between law enforcement agencies and these data brokers. And how you got those, I'd love to know. But in these contracts, they use some terminology quite obviously over and over again, uh, some of them being like publicly available data or open source information. So first, 
since they're obviously almost making these terms of art, what, what do those terms really mean? Uh, you know, do they have any sort of a legal connotation that's important here? Or are they just kind of loosely defined and they're kind of playing on the fact that they're loosely defined? And second, they imply that the information is basically simply available for anybody to obtain. And if that's the case, you know, what's, what's the real concern here? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a great question. And one of the key things we point out in our report, and you're right, a lot of the solicitations, requests for proposals from these law enforcement intelligence agencies, you know, seeking these kinds of personal data or, or, or data broker services will include terms like open source and publicly available. And it would give the impression that they are actually seeking publicly available um, information, which maybe could be publicly available to to any one of us and may therefore, you know, not be as concerning mm-hmm. because if it's already publicly available, if you, if you post something on Twitter, you know, each tweet has a public URL and mm-hmm. the, the government is, is looking for that and why should we be concerned from a privacy perspective. But I think that's not, that's not what they mean. And this is the, this is the problem in one solicitation where they use the term open source, it was referring to data that could include someone's internet fo- footprint, for example, uh, data used to create user accounts, um, phone numbers, GPS information, mobile phone platform like the operating system they're using, social media I- identification handles like Twitter and Twitter, Tumblr, Snapchat, etc., mm-hmm. etc., et WhatsApp I- identification, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. And in one sense, when you read that, it's clear that this is not all open source or publicly available information, right? If someone had the budget to go and acquire that information, that may be the case. I mean, mm. and and you'd have to have an extensive budget, mm-hmm. say, for example, like these um, law enforcement agencies. But these are not data points that are publicly available in the sense that we, you and I might understand it. So... The problem is that these terms are being used in a way, in a very specific sense, but not in a in a way that's understood by um, the public at large. So <laughs> the real problem here is that this, and the, the crux of this whole issue, as far as I'm concerned, is that, is that we have, as a culture, as a society, decided that we are willing to trade all this information for these quote-unquote free services. And so these private companies are collecting this data and it's available to um, amongst themselves and amongst these data brokers and marketers and advertisers. And so, you know, law enforcement and intelligence agencies are just saying, well, Hey, it, it, it's right there. And, and and I think one of the points that they bring up and uh, like you would kind of address is they're saying, well, foreign intelligence agencies and foreign law enforcement can get this stuff. They can go buy this stuff on the open market. So if they can do it, why can't we? I mean, I think that's a valid argument and, and it obviously points to the bigger problem, but how do we argue, or maybe how do you guys argue that we should prevent our own law enforcement agencies from accessing data that any other agency in some other country could buy just as easily? Right. And that, that is an argument you hear, but we have to keep in mind that all law enforcement intelligence agencies are subject to the U.S. Constitution and the laws in this country, right? Mm-hmm. And so because of that, they, we have to be aware of rules of, of legislation like ECPA and of the Carpenter decision and of the rules that are in place to protect people's privacy. So 
the fact that foreign entities may be in transacting with data brokers to get personal data of Americans is, a, is definitely a big problem. But that does not open the gates for domestic uh, law enforcement intelligence to, to, to follow suit, right? We mm-hmm. do have to protect the rights of Americans here. And that is one of the key things we, we argue in, in the report as well, that there are certain rights that we have to protect, constitutional rights and others that we need to protect, and, and that should apply in this case as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I just it just seems like such a uh, a thorny problem, but yeah, I, and and obviously that's one of the things that your report is highlighting. So part of the problem with a lot of these things is, and I love the term surveillance capitalism. It was a book that came out recently, mm-hmm. and I think that I think that term is taking uh, is taking root, and mm-hmm. and it, it it truly is right. the, the you know these. This corporate data collection it really does amount to surveillance, and and while you know a lot of people think, eh, I don't care if they, you know, sure, I want to see better ads, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but it but what we've uncovered here with your report and what we've been talking about today is that what that really does enable is actually true surveillance by the government in a way that you know makes it end run around our regular privacy rights that are enshrined in the Constitution or otherwise, you know, and I worry you know about agencies like the the Border Patrol or ICE you know, mm-hmm. using this data, which we haven't really talked about them yet. So in your reporting and in, in your in your investigation for this, did you run across any any troubling examples or uh, things around mm-hmm. surveillance, like human surveillance that has been enabled by this sort of market? Yeah, I think that's a good question, right? Because I think, and what we've discussed so far and what we attempt to highlight in report is that the fact that Law enforcement intelligence agencies can evade these existing rules and and purchase this kind of personal data. It, you know, there's serious privacy concerns because these this data reveals a lot about mm-hmm. uh, people. It's very sensitive, intimate, and so on. But it also can have disproportionate impact on some uncertain communities, right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned ICE, Border Patrol, and so on. There was uh, an example which we cited in in our report of how the development of a Muslim prayer um, app on, on, you know, on your mobile phones was sending data to different uh, aggregators mm. and third parties and so on. Mm-hmm. And through that series, uh, ended up with a data broker that in turn sold that data to ICE, who then were, you know, used that kind of intimate personal data to in their investigations and so on. Mm. But the, the point is there, it can be data that targets specific communities in a disproportionate way. And these communities are, as others have are, are discussed in like other research, and even those, um, my colleagues at CDT have pointed out, this kind of surveillance capitalism and government surveillance that you're uh, talking about ha- has disproportionate impacts on communities of color and immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. And this, this example um, of the Muslim prayer, you know, mobile app is is is, is just another illustration of, of, of that. So these, these concerns, the, the problem that we're asking to report should concern us all, but we should also be worried that there could be, you know, additional negative impacts on other communities, communities of color and immigrant communities as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how do, how are they getting this data? Just I'm curious, are, are they are they contracting with data brokers in, in the sense are they, are they getting access to APIs that these like like in Cambridge Analytica? I know this doesn't quite apply here, but basically Facebook had these open APIs for third parties to do supposedly research. And this other company did research, but they ended up using it for political purposes, which was against the terms of service and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Right. But, but when it comes down to it, like, 
are they buying data packages? Are they downloading historical data in, in data dumps? Are they actually getting live real-time access to, you know, data broker information? Like, how are these guys getting this information? What form is it taking? We should talk a bit more maybe later on about what kinds of sources we found and the difficulties around that. Because like I mentioned at the start, this is it was very difficult to kind of unearth what's happening here, right? Yeah. But so one of the examples that we came across frequently was, you know, law enforcement intelligence agencies purchasing um, like subscription services to databases. Hmm. So one database, for example, claimed, this is forensic logic, um, Coplink X, which claims, for example, that they draw on 3,225 different individual data sources and have a billion law enforcement records. Hmm. Of, of, of people in, in, in the US, right? Of different kinds of records that, that through, a, through a subscription service, a law enforcement um, agency can have access to and then presumably retrieve data for different purposes or different inve- investigations that they're pursuing. So in many cases, we saw this kind of thing. And what we found in just looking at the different types of services that that law enforcement is looking at is trying to pursue and and, and we 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 infer this based on the kinds of solicitations that mm-hmm. they're putting out there are four broadcasters one is really alone geolocation data right so where the, the the specific location of a mobile device and this is the kind of data that many different brokers will provide so that was quite common. Another category is around um, metadata and communications data. Hmm. So that that includes like you know, not so much just location information, but you know when was a message sent and mm-hmm. to how many people and maybe the, the size of the message, that kind of thing. So that's another area. And then I think another one that's probably more might resonate more with just odd, with everyday people is license plate reader data. Mm-hmm. So this is essentially. These kinds of systems, you know, you have various kind of computerized camera systems that essentially capture license plates, information mm-hmm. of vehicles on the road, and they'll record like the location, the date, the time, etc., of when the, the license plate information was captured, maybe by a photo by a camera. And incorporating that in different databases provide that as a service again to different different agencies. And so that's another huge, huge area of, of focus for a lot of these. There are other areas um, as well, but uh, including, for example, utility data and others. But but in in effect, you know, a lot of the solicitations looked at these, and a lot of it involved trying to get subscriptions to databases that mm-hmm. provided this kind of information, so that the, the agencies could then have access to it whenever they they needed it. Transparency is a huge problem when it comes to data collection in the United States, and you know, perhaps anywhere outside the EU at this point, since they've got GDPR and we don't. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that is most people are you know, blissfully unaware of what data is being collected and with whom it's being shared. You know, however, you know, most of this is being done by private corporations for proprietary endeavors, right? But should we expect more transparency and accountability when it comes to public and governmental agencies? And, you know, what's the reality there? Yeah, I think I think we definitely need more transparency, particularly with with what's happening here uh, in terms of transactions between law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and data brokers. As I've alluded to earlier, you know, it was in, in, in trying to research this topic, it was very difficult. So first of all, what we tried to do was to look for publicly available information, as in requests for proposals, solicitations, awards, or other kinds of contracts between law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and data brokers. And we found very little to be honest with you. 
In fact, I would argue that what we've touched on in this report, where we looked at about 150 different documents, we found awards in about 30 that we could confirm the amount amounted to about 86 million. I would argue that's just the tip of the iceberg, that we're barely able to really find anything based on this kind of limited public search. Now, are these documents available? Like, is there a government website I could go to right now to just look these things up? Or did you have to go like do a Freedom of Information Act kind of a thing here? How did you okay. get a hold of this? Right. These are publicly available. So you could go to like usaspending.gov uh, or similar kinds okay. of databases. The thing is, even if you did that, okay, it wouldn't be so easy. You'd have to be looking for specific kinds of keywords. Shocking. Um, <laughs> you'd have to you'd have to know what you're looking for in other words. Mm -hmm. And even then, it's still difficult. And the reason I said that is because, think back to our discussion on open source, you know, what's publicly available, the, the terminology is not, not always clear, right? Even the documents that we found, you know, they lack clarity on, on like the specific niche of the contract that, they're, they're, that they have in question. I mean, it's, it's clear that it involved the transaction of their own personal data, but what exactly what kinds of person data and, you know, for which period and for which, you know, for what population are we talking about? It wasn't always clear. Mm -hmm. so, so that leads to a couple of things. It seems by intent that it's really hard to understand what's happening because of the lack of transparency in the language. You know, some data brokers actually, for example, when we kept one data broker, Bubble um, Street, for example, had in its own terms of service, had a disclosure saying that its services should not be used as a basis for any kind of legal process in any mm. country, as a basis for a warrant, subpoena, etc. Hmm. So <laughs> that term is also preventing any greater transparency in what, you know, what what kinds of transactions are being engaged in here. A lot of it is just highly attenuated and shrouded in secrecy, right? On the flip side, because these data brokers are providing a service, they have to advertise those services, <laughs> right? Right. So what you can do, what we did do, is to look at the types of what the, the brokers themselves claim to be providing. And through that, you know, we could come across different like brochures and websites, these are all public, that could tell us what does the service provide. Like um, one example is LexisNexis, um, digital, their digital identity network, which claims to create a unique digital identity for each user based on their devices, locations, and anonymized personal information. So things like that tells us that these are services and this is what the services contain. And these are, and, and through our documentation, we found that law enforcement and different intelligent agents are engaged in transactions or service subscriptions to these particular kinds of databases. So in that way, we could get a sense of what data is provided through those uh, subscription services. But this is not easy. And none of this involved like what you had mentioned, like FOIA requests now, which would be a next step, I think, mm -hmm. um, in, in introducing a lot more clarity in, into what's going on here. So basically, I think we just, you know, like I said, this is tip of the iceberg. We've, there's a lot more going on here that we're not aware of. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because th these are government agencies, right? These are not yeah. private agencies. So are you saying that you got the distinct impression that they're being deliberately opaque, like that, that they are trying to avoid inspection by the, the general public or by rights groups like yourselves? Do you think that they're obfuscating deliberately uh, in order to escape notice? Yes. And this is happening at different levels. I mentioned 
how some data brokers themselves will say will restrict the way that you can discuss the contracts that you have with them. But the government agencies, the law enforcement intelligence agencies are also quite vague in, in the description that they provide in these kinds of award, um, the documentation around awards and so on. So it's very hard to know exactly what what kinds of services and data are being purchased here. So yes, I, I think it's quite quite unclear and a lot more could be done to, in terms of better, better transparency. In your report, you mentioned some bills that are currently in front of Congress and some efforts to try to rectify some of the problems that you've uncovered. What are some of those current bills that are being proposed to address the issues outlined in your report? And in your view, how well, how well do they address these concerns? I think one main one that we should mention here is the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, which we actually highlight also in our report and mm -hmm. suggest that as a way forward. And, I'll, and the, reason, uh, the reason for that I'll say uh, briefly mention is that it seeks to address this loophole in ECPA that we discussed earlier mm -hmm. on, right? Deliberately so, right? Because it recognizes the problem around this loophole, how law enforcement uh, is able to therefore then purchase personal data from uh, third parties not covered under ECPA, like data brokers, and essentially evade the requirements that are laid out in that law. So it is a, a legislation that directly addresses that, which is great because that's one of the big problems that we found we identified here. And that has led to many of these other instances of transactions between law enforcement and, and data brokers. But one of, the, one of the things that it doesn't do is it doesn't cover all types of sensitive information. So, for example, biometric information, which could include, you know, iris scans or fingerprint information or so on, is not directly covered mm. Are, are explicitly covered under the, under the current language of that Fourth Amendment It's Not For Sale Act in terms of restricting what law enforcement intelligence agencies can purchase from data brokers. So there are there are some gaps there, but we argue that this is, as a first step, this is would be a huge improvement over the current um, situation where this loophole exists. Okay, given the current level of gridlock in U.S. Congress, how hopeful are we that we can actually pass, you know, meaningful privacy legislation in the near future or some of these other maybe restrictions around law enforcement use of that data uh, if we can't get direct privacy legislation? <laughs> yes. But, you know, if we can't fully restrict data collection, make things by default opt in, you know, some of the things that GDPR has done, would it at least be helpful to mandate more transparency and or at least, you know, opt out type of requirements? I think, yeah, I think you're right. You know, the politics of Congress makes it difficult to like predict passage of laws. Um, but transparency, greater transparency is definitely another way forward. I think one area is in requiring law enforcement intelligence agents to provide more transparency in their procurement processes, mm -hmm. right? Because we're in, that's what it, what we're talking about here. So how they purchase, the kinds of purchases of data that they have from data brokers. So going back to the problem I mentioned, you know, solicitations, procurement awards, they should actually have meaningful comprehensive descriptions of what is being bought and sold right mm. so that that we can we can better understand that but similarly maybe data brokers should also be more transparent about what's happening <laughs> one example you know if you look at telecommunications providers right they often publish and these are major cell phone companies right they often publish reports about requests 
listen to all the different kinds of requests that they would get from law enforcement and intelligent agencies mm-hmm. for um, data as a means of just providing greater transparency to the public about what about their engagement with law enforcement. And, and similarly, we can imagine how data brokers could do this as well, right? So there could be other steps that we could take besides what would be the ideal is like passage of an, a, a, a legislation like Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. Or, or even better yet, like broader privacy legislation that would include some, provide a clearer regulator regime for data brokers themselves, right? But there are maybe other steps that could happen in terms of improving transparency, both for like law enforcement and maybe on data, data brokers as well. Like I know in some cases, and this may be, I may be thinking about foreign cases here, but mm. I, I know in some cases it's required to let data subjects, and just because I say the word and now I think it's got to be GDPR, know when their information has been requested by law enforcement. Like part of the transparency is not just generally speaking what we're allowed to collect and who we're allowed to collect it from, but, oh yeah, I need to notify Carrie Parker that the FBI has requested Mm -hmm. his records for this, this, and this. Do we have any such notions of of those kind of things in the United States or what do you, if we, whether or not we do, do you think that would be helpful in this case? It's just at what point do we implement? I think it would be very helpful. You know, we can imagine, for example, your interaction with a service provider, like a social media platform or, or, or your cell phone company, providing you with that kind of information about um, law enforcement requests and so on. But in the case of data brokers, you know, as we discussed earlier, there are just so many intermediaries and so many steps involved. Like something we didn't get into was that, you know, in the in the absence of comprehensive privacy legislation here in the U.S., what we end up with is a reliance on on privacy policies among these different Mm -hmm. service providers and and data brokers themselves, right? They also have privacy policies, right? But what happens when you have this very complicated supply chain is that you don't have a direct relationship with a data broker. So for example, I have no idea which data brokers have my data, right? Right. How do I, who do I go to? Whose privacy policy should I look for, you know, and, and to review, right? And even where you may uh, engage with a provider, a, you know, a platform, cell phone provider, others who have clear privacy policies, including what they share or do not share with third parties and what third parties are, can do with that, you know, it still becomes complicated. Like in one example, that we highlight, there was a study that looked at medical apps, like, um, you know, on, on, on Android, that, for example, you know, track uh, your medical information, your health, your exercise, and so on, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they looked at the privacy policies of those apps and found that they allowed for sharing of user data with third parties, including brokers for like mm-hmm. ad- advertising or analytical purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And they said that it's okay because the user data that's shared with them would be subject to the privacy policies of those third parties. But when they went to those brokers and all those third parties and looked at their privacy policies, they did not cover the user data. They only focused on the client, which was the mobile app developers. Right. So now we have this kind of, you know, you end up with the user going in circles, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're being referred from one developer back to like the specific third party policy and so on. And there's a lack of clarity there. So that, that's the other complication there about where... Where, at what point, going back to your question, at what level can we effectively inform the user of what's going on and, and effectively inform them about what might be available, what kind of rights might be available under which policy, right? Right. 
Well, and just to and just to add even more complexity to this, and to uh, mm-hmm. to illuminate why this is so difficult, particularly in the United States, is we have so many different government agencies that are that <laughs> that are overseeing different aspects of this, and that may come into play here. We've got the Federal Trade Commission. We've got the Federal Communications uh, Commission. We've got you know Consumer Financial Protection Board. You know, to some extent, the Department of Justice. So you know. In your view, what what government agency or, or agencies should oversee privacy rights? Uh, you know, from a jurisdictional perspective, how do <laughs> and you know is that really part of the problem? We've just got such a patchwork quilt and, and all these different hands in the pie. Well, yeah, I think there. Yes, yeah, so th- so there are many different questions of jurisdiction there, but you know, I think the FTC could has a role, a significant role when it comes to enforcing consumer privacy rules, which can include regulations around data brokers. One of the problems, though, is is, is around funding for mm-hmm. FCT and its ability to actually enforce those rules, right. which, as you described, is quite complex. We're different, dealing with many different levels. So there's a resource issue that one of that's one of the things we argue for in the report. But yeah, I think the FTC can be a starting point here, as long as there is sufficient capacity and resources to actually enforce and and address some of these problems that we're outlining here. But okay, so maybe what I'm driving at here is: should we have? Do we need a new organization? Do we need a new government entity specifically around privacy to kind of bring all this under an umbrella and maybe? You know, another problem with some of these agencies is a lot of there's a lot of political appointees going on with some of these agencies. So just look at the FCC. I mean, we had net neutrality that was set to take place under Wheeler and the Obama administration, and then we changed right. administrations. We got Ajit Pai, and it completely reversed. And, and in fact, in some ways, between the, the FCC and Congress, kind of almost banned <laughs> further efforts uh, to, right. to for at privacy and net neutrality. So uh, all these political issues. And, and you're right. If, if it's not directly by appointing somebody with political leanings into a, a position of power in some of these oversight agencies, it's purse strings. It, it's managing. It, it's, it's it's gutting the funding. It's is right. there. I mean, that is the way the U.S. government. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it or leave it. That's the way the government works. But so do you guys have specific recommendations going forward about how we could address that aspect of this? You know, what are you recommending that we should be doing to set up some sort of a regulation regime that would be functional? Yeah, I think on a, on a, I guess a more significant level is the, the 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 legal, legislative and other loopholes that we point to, right? Mm-hmm. Which would have to be addressed, I think, as a, an, as a first step. Sure. Yep. Because then, then without that, you still leave these <sighs> right. agencies, with, right? You know, basket to carry water. So, right. All right. Now, with the the other problem you're talking about is this this, this kind of high degree of politicization of like basically everything that's happening in government, <laughs> right. which is, which is so this, this yeah you're right this has a very complex kind of layout to everything else in terms of how do we how you effectively address the problem with with data brokers, it so it's it's a difficult one I mean, uh, it's hard to envision you know. Uh, like a reduction in this degree of like uh, influence of politics in right. like administrative affairs and it's, yeah, it's a tough one to get around but i think having the right laws in place and and then the right resources and funding to these agencies will be a big step forward we can also complement that by maybe addressing the transparency problem we talked about earlier but also maybe shedding more light and, and this is something the government can do itself right 
through maybe bit more hearings to examine what's happening with data broker sales. And, and if an f- emphasis on foreign governments, for example, is some, a point you mm. raised earlier, if we can have hearings that could maybe shed more light on that, could in turn shed more light on the data broker ecosystem as a whole, right? That could be one way of getting mutual political agreement around a significant problem when it comes to like foreign governments accessing the data of Americans, right? Yeah. We could also definitely need more more research, I think. You know, the GAO, the, the Government Accountability Office could also lead to the lead on that. For example, just getting a sense mm. of the scale of mm-hmm. government transactions. So how much does the government spend right. on purchases from data brokers? We don't know. <laughs> but, but just getting that could give us, you know, a sense of the significant scale of the problem here. And so that, that provide, you know, providing more information on like expenditure, on engagement with foreign governments, just providing more information that could support momentum to, to push forward with some of these changes that we've called in for here as well. Yeah, that's actually a great recommendation. There are, we get, we get caught up in a lot of these, uh, the news stories and uh, about the government agencies that are unfortunately very politically driven, but there are several organizations within U.S. government that are not, and the GAO, the GAO is right. ostensibly one of them. Uh, right. and, and, you know, a lot of times we do get uh, really interesting and insightful uh, reports from agencies like that that are non-political, which is great. Yeah, that, I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. All right. So where do we go from here? You know, what other things uh, is your organization working on or maybe other rights groups working on right now? And, you know, what, are we, what do you recommend that we do, you know, as consumers and as citizens uh, to support privacy rights in your efforts here? I think, you know, we're looking at this broader problem here of just being aware of what's happening and, mm-hmm. and the problem of there are attempts to to make it difficult for us to be, have better awareness, right? This yeah. lack of transparency. But, you know, if those of us in like civil society groups, like advocates, uh, journalists, and everyone, public at large, right, can just have more awareness of what's happening here between data brokers, how data brokers are collecting and selling our information, and more importantly, how they uh, sell that to law enforcement intelligence agencies, I think think is a significant step. So the more that people are aware of the ways that their rights are being undermined, I think is very important. We produce this report, Legal Loopholes, to really raise awareness, particularly among policymakers, about this problem, what they can do, but also the wider public. But at a more public level, I think just having that awareness will also be important. So there are several recommendations that we have in the report, which some of which we mentioned, but others are there. I think those are all important first steps. But just generally, and I appreciate the fact, Kerry, that, that we're having this conversation because of you know your audience and maybe your 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 listeners will benefit from this conversation, mm-hmm. at least in the sense of uh, increasing their awareness of this problem. And then we can also, you know, address that in different ways, you know, whether we are uh, in the advocacy space or as journalists or as ordinary citizens and, come, you know, who engage with our representatives uh, uh, in Congress, right? Yes. And obviously, groups like yours, I'm sure, are happy to take donations. A lot, of, a lot of time, what I recommend to folks is they don't have the time to get out there and, you know, you don't have to go out there and protest in the streets and attend all the town halls yourself. You know, there's a lot of groups like yours that are out there every day doing the work on your behalf, whether you pay them or not. And, and you know, slip, the, slip you guys a little bit of money to help you do what you do. Yeah, you know, please check. I mean, it's, if you check out our website, cdt.org, you'll find all this information, including the support, but also about us. And yeah. Also ways that you can support our work as well. 
Well, Dhanaraj, that was extremely important and uh, enlightening. And thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us all about it. Thank you so much, Kerry. It's been a great conversation. Thank you again for inviting us. Thanks again, Dhanaraj, for coming on the program to talk about this. I realize that, you know, this can sound kind of policy and wonkish and whatever, but it really, really is important. And again, the, the real takeaway here is that all of this corporate tracking, this stuff that is ostensibly around serving us better ads and giving us a more personalized experience on the web. And, you know, that's the euphemism they often use, right? Which really just amounts to, I want to collect as much information about each and every person as I possibly can and sell it on this gray market of data where (laughs) basically everyone's saying, you know, in their privacy policies or whatever, well, we don't abuse it, but, you know, all we, what we really end up doing is making sure that we, the people that buy this information from us, pinky swear that they're not going to abuse it. And we really put the onus on them. And then the people that buy it say, basically point back to the people that bought it from and say, well, no, no, it's really their problem. And at the end of the day, what really happens is there's very little control over any of this stuff. And certainly in the United States, there's just no regulation around it. And so all this data is swimming out there. And a lot of people, you know, don't know what's really out there, what's being collected. And what's really scary is all the correlations of this data. All the first party data is bad enough, right? The things that Google and Facebook and Microsoft and even Apple, you know, the things they know about you directly and the websites you visit, the things, you know, Amazon, the things they know about you directly, yeah, that's one thing. And if I'm only sharing it with those guys and they only used it for making my experience better, eh, you know, maybe I can see that. But the problem is that they are sometimes even unwittingly making this available to third parties because a lot of these apps, for example, on your phone, a lot of these apps include these SDKs, these free software development kits that do something really useful. Like maybe it's shopping cart functionality or something else that's kind of a pain to re-implement. You know, why reinvent the wheel? Someone's already done it and they did a really good job. So I just want to reuse that widget. I want to take that part. But by using that software development kit under the covers, what you're really doing is also sharing a bunch of information with that company or organization or whoever wrote that SDK, because it's it's free for a reason. I mean, they've they got to make money somewhere. So a lot of times, even the app developers that are making these apps that are siphoning off this data don't even realize it's happening because it's some little chunk of software that they reused and from someplace else that was free that you know made it easier for them to write their app. And in the background is siphoning off your information. And so all this information is pooling out there and being collected and shared and traded and correlated. And it's just a gold mine for law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies, and not just ours, foreign governments. And that's really what this report drives home. And that's why this is such an important thing. And by the way, something we didn't really talk about today, but is important to understand is that we have agreements with a lot of other governments like what we call the five eyes countries, five eyes being five, you know, democracies, the United Kingdom, Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, I think that's all the five eyes. We have intelligence sharing agreements. So while it might be illegal for the NSA to spy on US citizens, it's not illegal for a foreign government to do it. In fact, it's done all the time. So (laughs) what's to prevent the NSA uh, from going to I'm probably going to screw this up, MI6 or whatever, whatever, you know, one of these foreign intelligence agencies are and say, well, I can't spy on on this citizen because it's a U.S. citizen and he's in the United States, but could you spy on him and give me that information? And 
you know, maybe all they're really doing is going to these data brokers and buying that info and then making it available. It It's super murky and it's really creepy. And it's because we don't have guardrails on this stuff like we should. And this report just highlights that. So the Center for Democracy and Technology, uh, that is at cdt.org. They are doing great work. You can follow them on social media. You can also send them money uh, to help support what they're doing. I would highly recommend it. I've got a link in the show notes. You can also read the report yourself. Uh, I've got a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, it takes you to the website. You can download the PDF. You don't have to read the whole thing. Uh, you can kind of skim it, but there's like a key findings part at the beginning. And at the end, there's like a section of what they recommend that policymakers and data brokers do in response to, you know, some of these abuses that they found. And, you know, you can kind of look at just those sections probably and get a lot of it. But hey, you know, it's worth checking out and skimming and maybe sharing around. All right. So I promised a couple announcements. Uh, I think I said last week that I might be doing this, and now it is official. I am definitely doing it. I am going to hold a virtual online holiday party for my patrons later this month. Uh, we're still trying to work out the date and time. I've got a little poll out for my patrons, trying to find the best time where I can get the most people to show up. But right now, it's looking to be like a 90-minute Zoom session. Uh, you know, I'll probably have a few uh, opening remarks or something, and then we'll have some drinks. We'll do some Q&A and just kind of hang out and chat. So if that sounds interesting to you, maybe now would be a great time to become a patron. Go to patreon.com. Uh, and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. Now, at that party, I've been working on a kind of a neat little side project. Actually, it's really, really cool that I cannot wait to talk about. And I'll probably at least tease that at the party. So even another little reason you might want to show up to the party is uh, I've got an interesting little announcement that I'm going to be making for something I'm working on for next summer. It might even involve creating a whole special patron level because I'm making something. And that's something I'm making would be a great thing to give away to my patrons. And of course, at any point, you can become a patron and talk to me on Discord. Uh, all my patrons have access to that. And you can just chat with me anytime on Discord, too. So if you want to interact some more with me, you know, give me some feedback, ask me some questions, or just talk about whatever, the way to do that is to become a patron. Now, I am also doing free webinars, uh, at least for small audiences, uh, on privacy and security. I've done several of these already. I've got a nice little canned prezzo uh, that I give that I follow with Q&A, and I've given it to several small groups. And if you have a group that might be interested in that, reach out to me. You can find a contact form on my website under the contact tab. And of course, there's also a link to that in the show notes. So next week, we've got a new show, plenty to talk about. Uh, if you haven't heard about the Life360 tracking debacle, uh, I will talk about that. We'll talk about this Verizon tracking program. There's a really cool, big security update that just came into Firefox and plenty of other things to talk about. Lots of news to catch you up on. And after that, I'm going to have a special holiday show and then we'll be into 2022. So lots of great stuff coming. Subscribe if you haven't already. That way you won't miss anything. I hope you're all having a good December so far. I hope you're getting ready to have a really nice holiday break. Remember to help your friends and family while you've got a little extra time with them to help secure their stuff. Give them some good pointers and help them, you know, set up and configure any of these smart devices they may be getting for Christmas that might also be siphoning off a bunch of their data. All right, everybody, take care. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your garbage down.